When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Hey listen, this week we have a very special treat for you. This is an extra episode. Just one more story for you this week. We'll be back to our regular episodes next week. But also we have a preview for you of a Stitcher original podcast called LeVar Burton Reads, hosted by none other than legendary storyteller LeVar Burton. Now weekly, on LeVar Burton Reads, you will be engrossed in the best short fiction handpicked by LeVar himself. He narrates some of the best fantasy and sci-fi stories out there with a dash of comedy, westerns, and everything in between. You love these kind of stories if you're someone like me. You'll hear stories from authors like Octavia Butler, Neil Gaiman, Ursula K. Le Guin, and Ray Bradbury. This show is everything you love about audiobooks and podcasts with beautifully immersive soundscapes and completely engross you in the story, plus the unmatched LeVar Burton himself. Season four is back on Tuesday, April 2nd with all new stories. In the meantime, catch up on seasons one through three. Just search LeVar Burton Reads in your podcast app and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's that little preview. Hey, y'all. LeVar Burton Reads is back for an all-new season now. This season, we'll travel back in time for some supernatural history. We'll spend some time in a dojo, and we'll even explore UFOs and making first contact. We're also going to revisit that moment in childhood where the ordinary blurs with the extraordinary. Your daily life will seem light years away. And one of the stories that we have coming up is an incredible narrative about the alchemy of a miracle. It's by the Kane Prize-winning and Nigerian-American author Tope Falloran. Here's a sneak peek. We need miracles. We murmur as the two men help him to the front. And in this charged atmosphere, everything about him makes sense. Even the irony of his blindness, his inability to see the wonders that God performs through his hand. His blindness is a confirmation of his power. It's the burden he bears on our behalf. His residence in a space of perpetual darkness has only sharpened his spiritual vision over the years. He can see more than we will ever see. When the old man reaches the pulpit, his attendants turn him around so he's facing us. He's nearly bald. A few white hairs cling precariously to the sides of his shining head, and he's wearing a large pair of black sunglasses. A bulky white robe falls from his neck to the floor. Beneath, he's wearing a flowing white agbada. 
He remains quiet for a few moments. We can feel the anticipation building breath by breath in the air. He smiles. Then he begins to hum. A haunting, discordant melody. The band leader tries to find the tune among the keys of his piano, but the old man slaps the air, and the band leader allows the searching music to die. He continues to hum, and we listen to his music. Suddenly, he turns to our left and points to a space somewhere in the ceiling. I demand you to leave this place, he screams. And we know there is something malevolent in our midst. <laughs> I can't wait for you to hear the rest of this story and to experience the rest of what we have planned for you this season. LeVar Burton Reads is back for an all-new season right now. So subscribe in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Okay, let's get to this week's extra story. This is Julian McCullough, a fantastic stand-up comedian based in L.A. Julian shared this one at a Risk Live show uh, last year. You can find him on Twitter at Jules Mac. Here he is now with a story we call Ghosted. You know, you have a few years in your life, like different... There's maybe three years of your life that are pivotal years, right? And everybody's are different. But one of mine was 1990, I was 10 years old, and I had grown up in a house that, in a family that was like, uh, they were artsy, like cool parents, uh, which sounds cool, but you don't choose that when you're a kid. You know what I mean? They were, like I'm named after Julian Cannonball Adderley, that's Miles Davis's saxophone player. I feel like that was a lot of pressure to put on a tiny white baby. <laughs> but my dad loved jazz, and not even the jazz you don't like. He likes way worse jazz. He likes avant-garde experimental jazz. That's the jazz that's like... And the drummer is playing a different song. And... Uh, it was the kind of, my parents were the kind of, they weren't hippies, they were like beatnik minimalist types, you know? Like, I remember Transformers were like the biggest toy when I was a kid, you know? And we were broke as hell, money was bad. And I remember asking, I was like, Mom, can I have a Transformer? And she was like, why don't you write a poem and transform that into a better poem? And I was like, I'm pretty sure this family sucks. So that was the kind of family, right? I asked for a bike and my dad goes, I'm afraid if you have too many possessions, they'll start to own you. And I was like, dude, I'm six. I won't let my bike ride me. I don't know what you're talking about. When you're that kind of family, you don't move. We moved all the time, but you don't move for like career opportunities. Careers are evil, right? So we would move because, like, this place is dead. Like, that kind of reason, you know? <laughs> like, I was born in Philly. We were there for, like, two years. And then we left because it, was, it got hot or something. And then we went to Portland, Oregon. And they were like, it's raining. So then we went to 
Oakland, California, and we were like, whoops, and then we went to San Francisco immediately, like, immediately. And we were in San Francisco for quite a while. I was there for four years, which was, you know, I was, I was still new, I, was, I went to three different schools, uh, but still, it was like the same city, you know? So I felt like I, I was, and I was there in peak San Francisco. You know what I mean? Late 80s, like fucking Full House, Huey Lewis, you know what I'm talking about. And then one day, my parents come home from work. We were, my, me and my sister were latchkey kids, which is um, when your parents care more about rent than you. And uh, it's fine. It's true. They should. But... Uh, <laughs> So we're home alone, and then my parents come home. I'll never forget this. And they go, we're leaving again. And I was like, why? And my dad goes, I'm seriously sick of looking for parking. 100% true. I even asked him as an adult, because I can't believe that was my real memory. And he was like, have you tried parking in San Francisco? It's fucking atrocious. And I was like, he is right, by the way. When we left San Francisco, at least with the other times, we knew where we were going and then we went there. And it, it either worked out or it didn't. This time, my parents were like, let's just pack all our shit up and we'll drive cross country and we'll stop when we see a town we like. <laughs> and I was like, I'm pretty sure this family sucks. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> we ended up, I'm gonna cut through a lot of open road and get you to we ended up in a place called Pittsfield, Massachusetts which is a town, don't clap which is a town it's a town in the Berkshires uh, which make it sound beautiful but it is not beautiful um, it's in the Berkshires which are mountains and it's the kind of town that people don't really move to uh, it's the kind of town where you're born there, you grow up and you go, oh man and then you die, and that's who lives in Pittsfield. So they're not used to like a family being like, hey guys, what are y'all up to? We're from San Francisco, like that. I remember my teacher was like, introducing me to the class, and she was like, class, this is your new student. Um, his name is Julian, and they were like, that sounds like a girl's name. And I was like, actually, I'm named after a jazz musician. And they were like, that's worse. <laughs> so I, uh, I did make five very close best friends. That had never happened before. Like, right off the bat, I couldn't believe it. You know, I don't know what I did right. Uh, it turns out, though, that they weren't, like, real. They were... I didn't make any friends, so instead I read books, and the five best friends were girls that were, you may have heard of, known as the Babysitter's Club. I read <laughs> voraciously as a lonely child in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. The Babysitter's Club, if you don't know, was a series of young adult fiction, much like today's Hunger Games or Twilight or Harry Potter. The difference is those books today, adults read those books, both genders read those books. Sorry, there's like nine genders. You know what I'm saying. All the genders read those books because they have exciting shit in those books. The characters have like magic powers or werewolf powers or bow and arrow powers or whatever. And the Babysitter's Club 
was about five normal 12-year-old girls who only had one power, and it was the power of responsibility, (laughs) which is by far the most boring power. But I read 38 of those books back to back because in my defense, when you finish one, you're like, do they keep babysitting? And then you have to read the next one to find out. It's a cliffhanger every time. So I have more about the Babysitter's Club, but I don't have time during this story because this story is not about that. Uh, I just will say, and I'm serious, I'm not going to do the rest of the Babysitter's Club bit, but I will say, you're probably like, well, what about Sweet Valley High? Uh, they're whores, so I'm not reading Sweet Valley High, okay? You can tell, you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but do you remember those covers? I was like, those girls are not representing the values that I'm into as a Babysitter's Club member. They were definitely getting fingered under the bleachers in third period. I was into babysitting. So, uh... So I'm new again, right? I've already been new, I think, something like seven times by, at this point, by sixth grade, you know? So I'm used to being new. And I'm lonely and shit, and I'm trying to find friends, and I'm, we're there for, we ended up being there for um, exactly one year. And about eight months in, I make my first, uh, I get my foot in the door with a friend. This kid, Robbie, who, this is in sixth grade, Robbie was one of those kids that, uh, he was Ferris Bueller. Everybody loved Robbie, and he was nice to everyone. He didn't care who you were. Wastoids, whatever, I don't have the list memorized, but (laughs) the jocks, whatever. Like, everybody loved Robbie. So he was nice to me, finally. And I was like, oh my God, Robbie's my best friend. And he's like, I have a lot of friends. Um, (laughs) Well, one day, uh, Robbie gets a new girlfriend, right? And I, I remember her, her name was Danielle. And she approached Robbie and she was like, I wanna go on a date this weekend. Like, I wanna go to the movies, but my parents won't let me go to the movies if it's just you. Which is, a, they're in sixth grade, like, what the fuck? Um, she wanted to see Schindler's List and they were like, it's, no. Uh, no, but she was like, I wanna go on a date. They won't let me go on. So her parents were like, if you go with a group, you can go. So she asked her best friend, who, which is funny, is this story is about this girl who I was in love with, and I don't remember her name. I remember Danielle's name. I have no idea why. The brain's funny, and guys are dicks. So, <laughs> early that week, I was informed by Robbie that I was going to go on a date, a double date with him and his girlfriend, just so they could go on a date with her best friend, right? And they told me her name. Let's just say Becky, because it was probably (laughs) Becky. And now, picture this. I'm in sixth grade. I've never had a girlfriend. I rarely have friends. And I'm like, in love. You know what I mean? Like, I still have not spoken to this girl, but I'm like, she's into it. She's not into me. She's into it, like the situation. And that's enough. So for a full week, I'm, her, she had, I remember she had curly blonde hair and braces and, you know, she, she was a, whatever, pretty girl. And I was just like, I'm, I just created whatever I wanted her to be, you know, because I wasn't going to talk to her. I'm not an idiot. And um, <laughs> so she was like every song I liked. She was Winnie Cooper. She was everything that I So 
the week is uh, the, we're gonna go to the movies on Saturday night, and around Wednesday I get up the nerve. I, I never wanted to tell my parents that I ever liked a girl. I was very weird about like letting people know that I had crushes or whatever. I don't know why. So it was like it took a lot out of me to go to my parents one day and be like, I have a date on Saturday, and they're like, awesome, and I was like, shut up. And, uh, <laughs> so, so they go, well, what are you going to do? And I go, we're going to go to the movies. And my parents, we were literally on food stamps in Pittsfield. So my parents were like, we don't, we literally can't pay for your movie. And I was like, well, I can't back out because I don't have $6. You know what I mean? So I went through, I went to my room. And I was looking through my shit, and I'm like, I gotta have something worth something to somebody. And I look through my, uh, I start looking through my baseball cards and my football cards, and I find my prized possession, which was a Dan Marino rookie card. Dan Marino was a quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, and back in San Francisco, my, <clears throat> my dad's friend from work had taken me to a card convention, and uh, he was like, I, that sounds weird. <laughs> Why would that happen? He, my, he told my dad that he was going to a card convention. And, was like, and my dad was like, oh, my kid collects baseball cards. Can he go with you? And Doug was like, whatever. So we brought this nine-year-old kid to a huge card convention. And when we got there, Doug's not like into kids or anything. I'll never forget this. We get there, and it's enormous. It's like the San Francisco Convention Center. Imagine is very big. We get to the front. It's just me and Doug. And Doug goes... I'll meet you back here at 12.30. And then he just left. And I was like, what's time? So that day, my dad had given me five bucks to spend. And uh, we had money in San Francisco. And I remember I had bought that damn... I spent all my money on one card. I bought the Dan Marino rookie card, right? So that's how I got it. So now it's sixth grade. It's a year later. And I, I find it. And I'm like, I think this thing is worth something. So I look it up in the Beckett Monthly or whatever the card book was. And it's worth $24. And I'm like, holy shit, I bought this a year ago for $5. If I keep this for another 10 years, it's going to be worth $42 million. Like, I didn't... I was like, or I could sell it right now and go to the movies. So I walk down to the baseball card shop, that, or I rode my bike down to the baseball card shop. And I walk in, and the guy looks like the Simpsons comic book guy, you know? And he's like, uh, what are you doing here? And I was like, I want to sell my Dan Marino rookie card. And he goes, I'll give you $12. And I was like, it's worth $24. And he's like, take it or leave it, loser. And I was like, sold. So I sell the only thing I have worth anything. He gives me the 12 bucks. Does anyone want to guess the movie we went to? What's the most romantic movie in the world that came out in 1990? That four 12-year-olds could go to. Titanic? 1990? Good guess. That would be really weird for 12-year-olds to be like, I want the funny repartee of a Nora Ephron film. That's a good guess, though. What? Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy. No, we were, we were aware of the uh, problematic nature of that movie. We were not. Ghost! So, we go to Ghost... And I remember I'm scared shitless. We get dropped off by Robbie's parents. And I'm like, I can't even look at Becky. Like, I'm just so nervous and freaked out. And we get in the theater. And um, 
Luckily, Ghost is so good that I forgot to be nervous, and I was just like, <gasps> I'm fucking crazy for Swayze right now. I'll never forget, when Unchained Melody played the first time in that movie, I started crying, and I'm in sixth grade on a date, and I'm like, you can't do this right now. Like, I was, like, freaking out. And then the fucking pottery part happened, and I was like, you're crying with a boner, and you're in sixth grade. You can't... You can't go back to school on Monday. So we get through the movie. I had spent... The movie was $6, so I had taken Becky... So I spent all of my $12 on the movie, and uh, we leave the movie, and we, I don't think we ever spoke more than a full sentence to each other. I was so nervous. I don't even know if she was. Um, and I was like, I had two thoughts afterwards. I was like, I have a girlfriend and a best friend, and Ghost is the best movie ever made. <laughs> We get ho- I get home that night, and that night, it was Saturday night. The rest of that weekend, I'm on fucking cloud nine. Now, there's no cell phones, there's no internet or anything, so I don't see Robbie or hear from those people for the rest of the weekend, but it doesn't mean anything, right? Nobody talked to anybody back then. So I just rode my bike around Pittsfield, right, with my headphones in, listening to Unchained Melody, like, on repeat, and just being like, I'm in love, that's the way it should be. That's Wilson Phillips. Uh, it also came out in 1990. Anyway, um, and I just was like, I'm like, I can't. Believe I'm finally accepted. You know, we our family's struggling. We're on food stamps, but like, I have a girlfriend and a best friend or whatever. Monday morning, I go to school, and Becky is walking this way in the hallway, and I'm like, walking up, and I'm like, I don't know how this is gonna go, but it's gonna be awesome. And she just walked by, like she didn't even look at me, and I was like. Fucking Dan Marino threw for 32 touchdowns that year. My po- I guess the point is, I invested every dollar I had just to spend time with a girl, and it did not work out. And uh, I learned that lesson, and I never did that again until three years ago when I got divorced, and now I'm in debt. But you guys have been great. That's my story. Good night. Thank you. That is all for this special extra episode of Risk brought to you by LeVar Burton Reads. You just heard from Julian McCullough, and we will be back on Thursday with a classic Risk singles episode, and then again on every Tuesday with our regular full-length new episodes. Anything else you want to know about us is at risk-show.com.